See, you're a good yodeler too. Yo. Yodelehihu. Welcome to the Lanky Guys. We are the word on the hill. We are the word on the hill. This is Hold welcome on. to Lent. Yeah, dude. Dude, uh, you know, uh, you know, forgive us our debt as we forgive those who are in debt against us. Is that the Lent? I knew there was a financial joke coming with Lent. <laughs> exactly. Soon enough. Yeah, dude. We are only Lent this time. Oh, uh, um, very good. Oh, well, it is. Uh, it is wonderful to have you here with us. Is there a name for the day after Ash Wednesday, which is when we're recording this? Like Thursday after Ash Wednesday is literally the liturgical name for the day. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, it's not not Shrove Thursday or no, no. They're having a big meat party at the oh center. the Focus Crew. Yeah, they decided yeah. To, because we had we fasted from meat yesterday and we'll fast from it tomorrow that they're just going to be very Catholic about it. Did you see all the different names they had for meat? The no. meat party on their board. You should go to the Focus office and look at all the names, potential names for the party. It's worth it. <laughs> okay. Well, well uh, you guys can't do that because you're listening online. Yep. Uh, or offline wherever you are you're listening and we're happy to have you we're back father peter and i are back together after a long absence from each other i missed you my my whole family of five and i are back in colorado now and uh sky didn't sleep a wink last night no no there was a baby and there was an older kid projectile vomiting and then there was another kid with a rash and it was it was one of those parental nightmares (laughs) dude annie and i just looked at each other at one point we're like this is the worst night in over eight years of parenting we've ever had. Dude, that's intense, man. It's all right. right. Last night I slept so comfortably. I woke up at like (laughs) 3 a.m. And I was like, I was like, did I really just sleep that well? Wow. And I was, you know how it's like you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just so comfortable. You're like, I I get more of this. I don't know that. Oh, dude. This is. I commend you for it. A celibate's life, man. (laughs) A celibate's life for me. All right, it is the first Sunday of Lent. Well, like you said, today is the Thursday after the Friday after the Ash Wednesday. Yep, and and uh, <clears throat> we're entering into the first Sunday of Lent, which we are. Um, I'm really excited about it, man. I, I like. I have a spirit of joy. I'm uh, I'm thankful today. Good. Um, I, I you know I've been getting texts like, "Is Lent over yet?" It wasn't even <laughs> halfway through Ash Wednesday. Yeah, that's how I felt yesterday. <clears throat> I I came into Ash Wednesday feeling so good. I'm like, I'm gonna fast. It's gonna be great. I'm gonna be soaked in prayer. This is gonna be the best. And then you know you get to about noon <laughs> and everything stinks and then your first night of of lent is the oh, worst that. night of parenting that you've ever had is that a coincidence can, i think not can i make an online confession yes because i didn't sleep i don't think i slept last night okay okay I last like night at about twelve ten. Uh huh. so ash wednesday was officially over i went straight to the fridge and got the king cake i was like you know what <laughs> i made it through ash wednesday I made i'm it gonna be through. up all night i might as, might as well have some king cake is that legit? Is that allowed? Dude, I don't know, man. That sounds good to me. <laughs> okay, I, don't, good. I don't know. All right. Well, on that happy note, it is the first Sunday of Lent, like you said. Our first reading this week is coming from the beginning. So we're going back to Genesis, out of Isaiah. Oh, <laughs> dude. I'm You're very happy you, about I, that. You know, like, I love Isaiah. Do you? But, but, um, but, like, he's been hanging out way too long. He needs to go, like, spend some time just, like, doing his thing, man. He is. He's going to. He'll, he'll be back in ordinary time. But for now, we got Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 uh, through 9, and then jumping over to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Which is good. It actually kind of makes a nice whole, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you could have a lot of stuff in the middle, but you don't need it. So then we're... What? Are, 
I mean, we don't need that extra stuff, do oh, we? Oh, we don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. What did you think I said? I, di- I didn't know. Okay. Well, Psalm 51, 3 to 4, 5 to 6, 12 to 13, 17, and then the responses from 3A. Man, be merciful, Lord, for we have sinned. Okay. Then Fair our second, second reading, what is that? Oh, Scott? the second reading is coming from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Then uh, then we uh, jump to Matthew verse uh, chapter 4, mm. 1 through 11. 1 yep. through 11. Which um, is through eleven, the uh, the the paradigm of Lent, right? It's Jesus is forty days in the wilderness. Yep, or the, the paradox Lent. of Lent, the paradoxical paradigm of Lent, or the paradigmatic paradox. Uh, <laughs> See what I did there? With in a pericope form. Ooh, but it's not. I know. Pericopatic. How do you uh, adjic- How do you make pericope a- adjectival? adjectival? <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> all, right, all right, let's go back to Genesis. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Dude, can I just tell you please that I love Genesis and like the band, the Phil Collins band or the book? I can feel it coming in the air tonight. Actually, that's just Phil Collins in his solo work. Me saying that felt like you saying it for some reason. Yeah, like, that's something Father Peter would have said. I know. This is amazing. It is. I feel like Lent is new. It, like it's changed all <laughs> of our roles. So you're going to be the straight man now? I am. And you're going to be the guy who makes all the weird comments. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you think of me? No, it's not. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Um, so you love Genesis. I love Genesis. And, and like, we're looking at this moment where God, like, uh, things happen real quickly here. Like, we got Adam. He's, like, formed out of the ground. And then they get totally jack everything up. I mean, like, that's really kind of, th- that's, <laughs> well, like, welcome to land. It feels that way because we've skipped that huge chunk of text. I know. We don't need that text. Well, yeah, I, I mean, we, we do. We do need that. Yeah, text. but I, I don't know how to talk about this without giving a little, a little exegesis on the whole thing. Please, we kind of have to. Yeah, exegete. So here's what I think is, I, I okay, just take a step back. I'm looking at all these readings, and there's something profoundly good and profoundly simple about the schema of the readings this week, because basically, okay, so we're entering as a church into Lent, um, headlong into Lent now, and basically for the first Sunday, the church is saying, okay. Lent is all about repentance. It's all about preparation. It's all about recognizing that we are not who we're supposed to be, but we have a God who wants to make us who we're supposed to be, right? Right. That's fair. That's very fair. So if these are the themes of Lent, how do we start? We start by going back to the beginning and saying, okay, how did we get here then? And so all of these readings are basically summarizing the story of human sin. How did we get here? Well, let us go through this sort of litany of readings and explain it to you. Which is literally what this is doing, which if you think about it, just uh, pedagogically is a good way to start Lent, right? Mm. So that's what we're doing. Which is really honestly like the keys in your, one of the keys in your life that I know is- My life? Yeah. How did we get here? Well, yeah, narrative and memory. Narrative and memory. Absolutely. That's going to be my book. Narrative and memory. That's a good title, isn't it? That is actually, uh, yeah, that's easily memorable. Ah, uh, because of the narrative. That yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, if you do read through, for, for sure, the Old Testament, I mean, every time Israel falls into its most severe sin, it's because it forgot where it came from. Absolutely. And that's just, and, and in human history, that's how we get in the places we get to, because we forget where we've come from. So it's a good, fitting way to begin. So, um, okay. I, I mean, like, that That actually is the is technically really what satan uses yes and, and that's what we're absolutely. seeing is is this this wild spirit of confusing what was absolutely what was given in the or just forgetting it entirely 
Well, yeah, that happens too. Which is, yeah. 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 Oh, that's that's convicting. <laughs> it really is, actually. Yeah. I want to pause on that, but uh, I won't. Okay, so um, we, we basically are stitching together two parts of the creation story here. So, oh, how do I not get into a lit, uh, into a whole lecture on this? There's there's two parts of the creation story. Some people say that there's two different accounts coming from two different authors. I don't buy that. I think there's one Genesis author who's telling the story of creation of human beings from two different perspectives. Yeah, well, which is a very traditional way to look at it. One is the is seeing the whole, and then the other one is a magnifying glass into it, this specific moment. Exactly right. So the first creation story, which which happens in chapter one, is you know God is creating the whole universe and the stars and the moon and the sea beasts and all these things, and then here in chapter two we zero in on the creation of humanity, particularly. It's 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 like uh, as your GPS is trying to lock you know it's like it's, it's seeing the whole oh yeah and, and then, then narrowing in yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a good analogy you're seeing there and then all of a sudden you're zooming in and saying okay let's locate ourselves wow that's really good way yeah. to be on the ball with your analogies today Ooh, lenten yeah. father peter hey man that's it's gonna be uh you know what okay this is my thought on lent real quick okay, okay. just lent is like classes when you start class and you're like, I hate this class. This is the worst <laughs> class I've ever taken. Usually by the end of the class, you're like, this was a great class. Mm. When you start like a class and you're like, I love this class. By the end of the class, you're like, I hate this class. It's usually like, it's very Ignatian that way. That's what is how that I an felt. analogy for? Lent. Oh, Lent. Yeah. So I might, you're starting your Lent <laughs> with like disdain yeah. and I'm starting it actually kind of happy. So we're going to flip that. Yeah. We'll see. We'll have a record of it <laughs> by the end in six see weeks. See you on Good Friday. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So we're, we're zeroing in on the creation of humanity. So God formed man out of the clay of the ground. He blew into his nose, the breath, breath of life. He became Which, a living being. Here's my question. Is this where they got CPR from the idea for CPR, but they went to the mouth rather than the nose? I'm just saying. I'm just asking the question. I, we don't have to have Ooh, answers. Oh, that's fascinating. I, or, 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 or is it simply re- referenced and echoed from Scripture that this is how life comes into humanity? The reason CPR works is because it echoes how God creates life. Or did they get it? From, you know what I mean? Is yeah. it chicken or the egg kind of a deal? Hmm, Sit on that for a while. All right. So then we get to, to talking about the garden. So it says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And he placed there the man who he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made various trees grow. They were delightful to look at and good for food, with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Bum, bum, bum. Dude. This is the first, like, moment of, like, oh, oh, something's wrong. Actually, you know, there, there's so many things kind of embedded into this text yeah. that if you're a good, informed Hebrew reader, which the original audiences would have known the nuances and the, the <laughs> idioms of the language and the culture and stuff— <laughs> It tends to be the case, certainly in Scripture, certainly in Genesis, big time in Genesis. So where it says that the, the Lord God made all these various trees grow that were delightful to look at. Delightful to look at. It can also be translated as beautiful to look at. Do you know what the, the Hebrew word there is? I think it's a word that you know. No, I don't know. It's the word tov, T-O-V. Oh, okay. Do you remember that word? Have we talked about that at all before? You know, I can't, I can't recall it. Tov, tov, the most common usage just in, in common Hebrew parlance is for fruit. Fruit is often described as really tov, beautiful, pleasing to the eye, delicious looking, you know, all these things. It tends to be the case that when you see something described as tov in the Old Testament and specifically in Genesis, it means somebody is going to misuse that thing. This thing is beautiful. It's pleasing. Someone's going to misuse it and treat it badly. So the tree, remember when Eve sees the fruit on the tree that she's not supposed to eat of, she sees that the the fruit is tov. 
Mm. It's pleasing to our eyes. It's going to be misused. I, I there, there's a, a hundred other examples. I think of Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Yeah. Technical dream coat, Joseph. Yeah, yeah. Remember that scene where he's with Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him, and he's trying to get away. It actually says early in the text that she saw him, and he was tove. And um, there, there's all sorts of places again throughout the text that when some when you see that word show up, you're like, uh oh, somebody's going to do something that they shouldn't do, and they're going to use something in a way that it should not be used. Because this is a thing that is good and is not meant to be misused, right? Wow, tooth be tooth, yeah. <laughs> nice. So it's subtly implanting, like, this is this little kind of warning flag, like, uh-oh, there's trouble up ahead. So then we have more description of the garden and the Euphrates River that flows into it and the creation of woman and all these things. Wait, but is, we jump. Is she described as tove? She is not described as tove, I don't think. I don't think she is. She's de- she's described as whoa, whoa, man. Whoa. That's the first thing out of that. That's the first thing out of Adam's mouth. Whoa, man. Anyway, okay. So we jump ahead after that, and then we get to uh, basically Genesis can be the, the creation stories can be split into kind of good news, bad news. Okay. So good news, everything's created, everything's beautiful. It's Tove. Here's humanity. Man is lonely. He gets woman. There is complementarity. There's relationship, everything is great. And then you hit chapter three and everything begins to go sour, right? Uh All these warning flags that were presented to you earlier begin to pan out. And chapter three begins with this kind of bad dude called the serpent, right? The serpent was the most cunning or subtle, sometimes it says, of all the animals that the Lord God had made. And the serpent asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat of any of the trees in the garden? Now, I know we've jumped over a big chunk of text, but what's wrong with what the serpent just said to Eve? Totally manipulating memory, like what we were talking about before. That's exactly, that's why that's such a good point. He manipulates memory. What did God actually say to Eve? You can eat of everything (laughs) but the one. And so the the serpent twists it. He's like, wait, did he really say you can't eat of any of the fruit? And amazingly, Eve buys into it. Right. She begins to kind of kind of go with it. And so she says, no, no, no. The woman answered the serpent. No, no, it's, it's cool. We can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It's only about the fruit on the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat it or even touch it lest you die. See, now we have the second one. This is what we call the hustle. In like, it, <laughs> it totally is. This is the hustle and con, man. Yeah, it totally is. So what happens is he's speeding her up. Yeah. And then she's getting her memory manipulated until Beca- until she like. Um, she's, she actually adds a stipulation that God did not put, you shall not touch it. Yeah. God never said that. No. But Eve is is in, in her kind of, yeah, she's, that, that's an interesting kind of psychological point of view. She's kind of getting spun out by this. Yeah. Presumably because, I mean, there's so much to this. Oh, there's lots of different thoughts and, you know, the Genesis creation text is purposely put in, the catechism talks about this, how it's presented to us in figurative language. We don't know exactly what the author, we know the intention of the author. Right. Was there really a snake creeping around the garden? I don't know. Is there some sort of malevolent, malevolent figure who's trying to frustrate God's plans? Yes, absolutely. Was there a piece of fruit hanging from a tree? I'm not sure. Was there something that Adam and Eve were commanded not to grasp at? Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the the church gives us freedom to say some of these images are figurative to evoke certain things, but they're figurative language that speak to profound truths. There is an evil one. There is something that Adam and Eve were commanded not to do that they did anyway. But in that, we have a little bit of leverage to kind of think about what, what might be going on here. And What's fascinating about the serpent, I think we've talked about this, the word for serpent in Hebrew, at least that's used here, is the word nahash. 
N-A-H-A-S-H, Nahash. And Nahash in Hebrew in general is kind of a generic language in which one thing can mean a lot of different things. It's, it's a weak vocabulary. It means it's not a very big vocabulary. So in Nahash, in other places in the Bible, Nahash is described as a giant beast, a seven-headed dragon, uh, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, could it be a snake? Yeah, a Nahash could be a snake. What's interesting, though, is do you remember after the original sin happens, after disobedience takes place, and God gives the punishments for sin, do you remember what the serpent's punishment is? To crawl on his belly forever. Which means that prior to that, what is the serpent not doing? Crawling on his belly, it's upright. Right. So this isn't a little snake slithering around the garden. At least even in the imagery that's being used, it's not a slithering snake. It's something that is upright. And if the Nahash is to be compared to other places in the Old Testament where it's used, this is a giant, terrifying, dragon-like beast, if you actually do some textual comparison. So you picture this. You have Adam and Eve, the perfect human beings. They have no original sin. They've got no concupiscence. God gave them a very clear command, said, don't do this. Trust me. I mean, it's one of those things where, I, you know, Scott Hahn talks about this a lot, that even us and our frail, broken human natures, few of us are stupid enough to, you know, go that overtly against God. Like, it was pretty clear. How did they, without original sin, without concupiscence, fall so easily? And could it be that this serpent is not just a little snake, but there is something huge and terrifying and threatening and bearing down on Eve, saying, basically, if you don't listen to me, I will kill you. Oh, God said you're not going to die if you eat it. I tell you, if you don't eat it, you will die because I'm going to kill you. I mean, could that be a little twist to the story? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I mean, and it goes right with the the <clears throat> the like the whole shamar that was actually given to Adam, yes. which means to guard. It's like be on your guard. There is this is not just there is going to be something that's going to be a problem here. Well, this is important, and I I might be I'm I'm getting risky with what I'm about to say. Oh. But what is what is the first sin? The first sin, not to guard. Exactly right. It's not the fruit. The fruit is sort of the fruit. The fruit is the fruit of the first sin. Right. But, you know, it, I've always been fascinated it, it, by... Every fruit has a root. So the root of this is... Woody, woody, woo. Is, is rooted in this... Yeah. This... Uh, uh, in... Uh, this... this not, not guarding, not actually not paying attention. Well, what's fascinating is that, you know, throughout the rest of the Bible, original sin is always ascribed to the sin of Adam. Which is fascinating because if you read the story, I mean, it's Eve who does it first. She's the first one to eat the fruit and then he gives it, she gives it to her husband. And you're like, well, how is it Adam's sin? Well, it's Adam's sin because it was Adam who was commanded to, like you said, shamar, which is the Hebrew word. That's the word that's applied to the Le Levitical priest to guard the temple against people who shouldn't be in there with spears and stuff. God says, guard and protect. That is your role. So the fact that there is a serpent threatening and talking to his wife means already, way before the fruit happens, that means Adam has already failed at his job. Right. Because there's a serpent threatening your wife. And apparently, as this is all going on, and Eve gives in to the subtleties and the temptations and everything else of the serpent, it literally says in the text that he gave the she gave the fruit to her husband, and in the Hebrew it says, who was right there with her? And he ate it. Which means that as his wife is potentially having her life threatened by this evil creature who's trying to frustrate God's plans, where's Adam? He's standing there doing absolutely nothing. Mm. And then it raises this question to me of, could it be, because I've always been fascinated by the fact that when Jesus is spoken of in the New Testament, specifically in Romans here, where we're going to get to in a minute, when, Adam is, when Jesus is spoken of, it says he's faithful precisely where Adam was unfaithful. Jesus is faithful where Adam is unfaithful. 
And that's always been a little bit confusing to me, unless you consider that, wait a second, what does Jesus do? Well, he faces the evil one on behalf of his bride to save his bride, and he is killed by the evil one. He allows himself to die for the sake of his beloved. Could it be that what Adam was actually called to do was step forward in faith, put himself in between the serpent and his beloved, and actually risk his life, trusting that he has a God who will save him, even if it means bringing him back from the dead? Right. It changes the story a little bit. And all of a sudden, it's not just about an apple or, you know, a snake, but it's about being called to give of of ourselves, which Adam doesn't do. It requires a lot of faith. All of these things, so I, I, I know I feel like we've talked about this stuff before, but it matters to kind of rehash it because I think this is the direct application to the gospel. And I've never seen this. I've never noticed this before. But consider all these things and hold these things in your heart. All right. Dear you got listeners. It. Well, and then let's, let's keep marching so that we can get there and, and actually make these connections. The psalm is, is appropriate. Again, if you've really heard the first reading... I mean, if you really hear the first reading, you should be, you should be, uh, we should all be able to recognize, look, our lives are not what they're supposed to be. I'm not who I'm supposed to be. The world is broken. How did we get here? Right? That fundamental question. Oh, this happened. We were unfaithful. We didn't trust God. We didn't have any guts. We didn't stand up in faith where we were asked to. All of these things. Well, the only proper response, again, this is how the psalm tends to work in the scheme of the, of the liturgy, is that it's usually the answer to the question of the first reading. And if you really get the first reading and understand what really happened, the only proper response is, be merciful, O Lord, for we have sinned. See, this is it's the... It's a conviction of one's own sin. Yeah, which is the weird part with Adam and Eve is that <clears throat> if we were to track what happens directly after this, yes. is they're not repentant, they're hiding. Right. I mean, we are. We already see them. They say they sewed fig leaves together yeah. and made loincloths for themselves. Yeah. And yeah. they realized they were naked. So it was like they had realization that, that what they did had real effect, yeah. but they didn't say, I want to be in relation, and they didn't try to see God out in the cool of the evening to say, I'm sorry. They actually well, find themselves hidden from each other, hidden from God, hidden from creation. Like, yeah, but not even that. It's not even a matter of them trying to seek God. God seeks them out. I mean, that's what's so crystal clear from the text. Absolutely. They but, don't have to do anything. God literally comes to them. It says, where are you? I want you back. I mean, I've always had this image of the God coming into the garden, ticked off, stomping his feet. You know, he's like, where are you? What did you do? Kind of a thing. But that's actually, I mean, there's subtleties in the Hebrew that show that's actually not what's going on. It is the God of mercy, the God of compassion, of reconciliation, who's reaching out saying, come back. And there's this, I think the rabbis asked this question. And it's a really profound question. What would have happened if Adam and Eve had simply said, we are sorry forgive us, be merciful to us. Mm. What if they had said what Psalm 51 says? Be, when God says, where are you? They say, be merciful, O Lord, for we have sinned. What would have happened in the story of humanity from that point on? Because I think it would have been a very different story. Now, we can't know how that would have played out, but it's a fascinating question to kind of dwell on, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's where, like... In a certain sense, we get to answer that question in ourselves. Yeah. We get to answer that in our own lives right now. Yeah. Like, what does it look like if we actually were to repent and say, be merciful, O Lord, for we have sinned? Cause, right. Because the truth is, is that it's really easy to get caught in pride yeah. and to get caught in sloth and to Absolutely. say, like, 
I, you know, to, to say, I, I have a sadness at what the will of God is for my life. Mm. And I have a hesitancy to actually carry it out in this moment. Yeah. And th- that's, we see that with Adam and Eve is that they have a moment of sloth. They don't, they're not willing to carry out the commands of God in that moment. They're putting it off or there's some sort of reality. And that's, that's where we ourselves are being called. Like, okay, we're in Lent. Don't is put it, s- it off anymore. Just do it. Do it right now. Yeah. I mean, it's sloth in part. I also think there's just a profound amount of fear. You mean three-toed sloth? Or do you mean sloth? Is it pronounced sloth? Yeah, sloth. <laughs> like chimney? Like chim chimney. Chim chimney. How do you pronounce chimney? Chimney. Chimney? I, go, I don't want to taint you. I love it when you say chimney. Well, I can't, I can't change now. You just did. Well, you asked me to say chimney. Don't. Say it chimney. the way your heart chimney. tells you. Chimney. Chim, chimney. Chim, Father chim. Peter has this thing where he always calls a chimney a chimney. And uh, I, I love it. And I had to say it a lot because we took our chimney out. I know, because he took his chimney out. Okay. <laughs> um, that, that does lead us to Romans perfectly. And Romans, it, there's not that much to say about Romans except for the fact that Romans is simply a commentary explaining precisely what happened in Genesis. And Paul wants to say, okay, if you get what happened in Genesis, there was this one man, Adam. He was unfaithful. His unfaithfulness allowed this sin to enter into the world. That sin has corrupted and comes trickles down to all of us. Right. If it all happened through one guy and his disobedience, in comes Jesus Christ. One man through his obedience can actually reverse the trickle. That's a terrible theological statement. But he reverses the downward spiral of sin and actually allows for an upward spiral of grace. That's not what Paul, those are my words to it. But but that's essentially what he's saying. If Adam's sin created a downward spiral, Jesus' grace through his reversal of what Adam has done, through his counter of what Adam has done, can create this upward spiral through of grace that then can trickle to all of us in the same way that the condemnation of Adam trickled to all of us. Yeah, it's it's the divine inversion. Exactly right. And and he does it in a very, very technical way. It's and very like a, methodical, like step by step by step. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, okay, you know, when I, I love off-roading. Off-roading is mm-hmm. really just technical driving. Yes. Technical driving where you're like turning your wheel two inches, going forward four, then now you go, okay, now I'm going to like go up. Readjust. Down, yep. Readjust. And, and, and like this is actually very much, this feels like off-roading. Yeah. Is you're like, this is really rocky territory because it matters. Yes. It really matters for us to understand yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what is the salvation that we, we have to get really super clear about exactly what took place with Adam and Eve and what take, p- took place with Jesus so that we can have confidence in our intellect to be able to make the choice from our will. And like off-roading, if we miscorrect, we might fall off a cliff. <laughs> I mean, I think the analogy holds. It does, man. You got to get I, it right. I'm, I'll tell you what, man. Make, make me nervous. Yeah. Dude, actually, it's funny what you just said. It like I like went back to Jaws three on the way up to Mount Blanca, and like there's this one really tricky thing that oh, like, that's people not have a, died. You don't mean the movie? There was no Jaws three. No, Jaws three is an obstacle on the trail up to Mount Blanca Got to it. to Como Lake, and uh, and uh, I like I did it, and it scared me because they have Jeez. plaques for people who've died up there. Oh my gosh. on that obstacle, and you're <laughs> like, and I just okay. I just felt it in my body. Oh my. Well, speaking of feeling things in your body, <laughs> let's go to the let's gospel. Let's go to the gospel. Okay, so here's the thing about the gospel. So again, this is this is this. Um, Led by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, I mixed. I don't up, know that one. I mixed up a bunch of songs. No, okay, one, good. That makes me feel better about myself. You should feel better about yourself. So again, this is the Lenten paradigm. So this uh, this is happening in Matthew. Twenty cents. 
What? Paradigm. Pair of dime. Oh, nice work. So this is happening right after Jesus' baptism. And some of the fathers of the church talked about how Jesus, it, it's Jesus' baptism that propels him out into the wilderness. That's actually what, it doesn't give him the grace because he's got all the grace he needs, but his identity in baptism, which crowns him as king, essentially, right? Changes the nature of water, prepares the way for us to be baptized. But it's also that moment in the gospel where the heavens are opened, the spirit descends upon him, the voice of God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the moment of public coronation. This is the words that David spoke over Solomon when he was pronounced king. So Jesus is now made king. And what do you expect a king to do? Embody his people. Now this is the this is the yeah, thing. Is well, I, I have this beautiful theory. You're getting you're getting ahead of our, us. Uh, okay. Well, in, the, in, you, the ba- uh, in the baptism, though. Okay. Okay. What I see okay. like taking place is like he here's <clears throat> the one who doesn't need to be washed. Yes. Right. Who is then washed? What yes. happens when somebody who's perfectly clean? goes into that which, not needing to be washed, goes into that which washes. They themselves take up that which is washed away in others. Oh, yes. So mm-hmm. in, in, in a certain sense, what he's done is he's touched the entirety of the world. The world is made up of water. Yeah. And he goes to this the depths of the water and takes up the whole world in a certain sense. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely it. So I, did, I hope I didn't jump ahead of you too Well, much. no, because there's another piece in the temptation in the wilderness about taking on his people. But before we get to the taking on his people, in, in that sense, I mean, the baptism point is profound. But if Jesus is now, I mean, Jesus is always king, but now he's kind of received the crown, crown in a certain sense. What do you expect the king to do? You said embody his people. Yes, absolutely. But on a very like practical, I mean, you know, when people elect a new president, what do we expect him to do? Assemble we, his cabinet. Yeah, I mean, that's a technical, I mean, that's a part of it. We expect them to beat the bad guys, defeat our enemies, stand up and fight for us, right? Okay. When you when you elect a political leader, when you get a new king, you're like, we want you to fight for us, right? right? I mean, this is what political leaders always say in their campaigns. I will fight for you, right? For the little guy. For the little guy. That That's like the mantra. So Jesus is crowned king. What do you expect him to do? Go fight for us. Well, who does he have to fight? Who's the enemy of Israel? Well, you know, people are thinking Rome. But who is the enemy of Israel? Well, that's where Jesus takes up everything and starts to mess with it and exactly saying like, right. like you, you think that I'm going to do this in a political way. Right. I'm going to the depths. I'm actually right. going to be messianic and really defeat the only real one that we can see, which right. is this slithering belly baby. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, in the, in the sort of ancient mythologies and, and lore, it was sort of understood, the, the wilderness was understood to be a pretty terrifying place, which is why the bandits all hung out there because, you know, people wouldn't come looking for them because people were afraid of the wilderness because the wilderness was understood to be the domain of Satan, the domain of the evil one. It's kind of where he hung out. So everyone was afraid of it. And which so is, the, the which imagery is the is story that, of, of like all role-playing games yeah, in is. the wilderness. It's true. <laughs> I'm just saying that like they, role-playing games to this day, you go to the wilderness, you're like, oh, here it's we go. Here, here this is where go. you're going to find monsters. But what is what's happening in that sense with that imagery is that Jesus is going to pick a fight. Yep. It's not Jesus going on this little retreat where he's going to be rejuvenated. I mean, that's some of the imagery we have of this 40 days, which is, yeah, I guess there's a part of that, but that's not really what's going on. It's Jesus mm. going out to Satan's domain to pick a fight with him. That's what our king is doing. Mm. And in a certain sense, that's what Lent is all about. We are, as we give things up, as we fast, as we make sacrifices, as we are are able to deny ourselves in little ways, we're picking a fight. We're saying we will not be mastered by the evil one and by our belly. We will fight 
for our holiness, for the God who actually made us who we are. Against spiritual evil evils, as yeah. we said in the opening prayer of Ash Wednesday. Yeah. We're, we are going to fight against spiritual evils with the weapons of self-restraint. Yes. Which is a really hard battle to fight. Right? But yeah. th- that is the battle. Yes. But that's what Lent is doing. It's not just this peaceful little 40 days of retreat. It is 40 days of fighting. And it's really good. And it's really powerful. So what does the fight look like? Well... Here's what I was struck by that I've never noticed before. And, and take it for what you will and see what you think about this. I will. So he goes out. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he was hungry. And, and Like then, I was after two hours of Ash Wednesday yesterday. And, I and, totally know what Jesus felt like. On one day. Yeah, <laughs> I only had one pancake yesterday. And, and it's right when you're mo- and when he's most weakened <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. that Satan decides to bring the heat. <clears throat> exactly. So he approached him and he said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus said in reply, it is written, one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth in the mouth of God. There are three temptations that Satan will throw at Jesus, three testings. Jesus responds to all three by basically quoting scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy each time. 8, 3, 6, 16, and 6, 13. Precisely right. And you can, you can look at these, you know, historically, traditionally, these are always looked at as the temptations that Israel faces in the period of the Exodus, right? Absolutely. When Israel comes out of, the, out of Egypt, they're wandering around, you know, they're, they're crying out for bread, their hunger, um, you know, all of these things, they, they directly go with the temptations where Israel failed in the wilderness. And had to do 40 years rather than 40 days. Precisely right. Which messes with all of the nations who then are freaked out and then they have to go to war because they 40 years is this gigantic nation just waiting to come in and you're like, oh, we better armor up. So again, Jesus is embodying his people. Where they failed, he's going to be faithful. But I think you can take it back even further than that. So I mean, that's Whoa. why I'm, I'm sure we talked about that three years ago, probably. But I think we can take it back way further than that. Again, Jesus take embodying his people. Jesus, in these three responses, I see the antithesis of Adam and Eve's response in Genesis. I see in Jesus' response all three times exactly what Adam and Eve should have responded with. Because what's the first temptation? Satan's saying, you should eat this thing that God told you not to eat. What's Jesus' response to eating something he shouldn't eat or making something into a food that he ought not do? Well, it's written that you shall not live on bread alone, that come, but every, every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Here, Eve, eat this fruit. No, I don't live on bread or fruit alone, but by what comes from God's mouth. And he told me not to. That obedience, That's the proper response. That obedience to God is substantive. Exactly right. But then it even builds on that. So then the devil took him to a holy city. He made him stand on the parapet of the temple. And he told him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you with his hands. They will support you. Um, and Jesus answered, again, don't put the Lord to the test. Eve is putting the Lord to the test, right? right? Satan's like, well, did he really say this? Did he really mean this? Do you really think you're going to die if you eat this? Just eat it and we'll find out, right? Eat the fruit, Eve, and we'll see if you actually die or not. No, Eve should say, we will not put the Lord God to the test. That is the appropriate response to Satan's temptation in Genesis. So then we get to the third one. Then the devil takes him up to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdom of the world and their magnificence. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. And at this, Jesus said, get away, Satan. It is written, the Lord is your God and you shall worship him and him alone shall you serve. Adam and Eve are potentially, again, this is a theory. Adam and Eve are potentially faced with a life-threatening threat. Absolutely. 
And they're saying, we will serve you because we are afraid for our lives. We will give in to this temptation. Yeah, the fruit does look pretty good. And we're terrified of you. So we will serve you, serpent, rather than the Lord. Whereas the proper response should be, no, even if I lose my life, the Lord, our God, I shall worship and him alone shall I serve. Even if we risk our lives for that. But Adam Mm. and Eve do the opposite and they serve and serve. You know, the Hebrew word for serve, it's avad, which can mean either serve or worship. So essentially what Adam and Eve are doing is worshiping the evil one by serving him. And every Mm. time we serve something other than God, we, in a certain sense, give ourselves to worship of that thing. Absolutely. But all three of these things that Jesus is responding with to Satan in the wilderness is not just Israel in the time of Egypt, but it's Israel embodied in Adam and Eve. Going back to the very beginning, recalling the narrative from the get-go. Because if you don't know where you actually came from, you can't understand where you're supposed to be going. And that's, I think, where Jesus is actually taking us back to. That's the brilliance of the church in stitching these particular readings together. The church could have put, you know, some reading from Exodus as our first reading. But it says, no, 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 we got to go back further than that. we got to go back to the beginning to really understand what Jesus is doing. Otherwise, this whole Lenten sacrifice doesn't really make sense unless you stand, understand truly what Jesus is actually battling against. Yeah. It's kind of cool, though. It's cool. And and what happens is that by navigating through these temptations, the the reality of what is offered and the fulfillment of these three temptations is a whole nother universe. Yeah. Because he's tempted. I mean, the very first one, the Eucharist. I mean, it's yes, like, yes. it's like you shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, what is the Eucharist? But the, the word, word of God made flesh. The, yeah. The word yeah. of God becoming bread yes. for us. Like, that it's yeah. it's it's actually the fulfillment he and like and so in some sense we're seeing that Satan has some sort of weird vague um, uh, ability to see what's coming. That, that yeah, that, that's that, interesting. And, and that like that like all the kingdoms of the earth, like he's like I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the earth, and and in in the reality is that um, that you you're not meant to take them by power, but by but inviting them into this bread, into this true life, into to actually not making themselves equivalent to God. It's like right. it's saying it's saying right. take up political power, and he Jesus says like every Christian should say this isn't this isn't my realm. I'm actually meant to serve God. And it's also I mean really going back to what we said at the very beginning of the podcast. I mean in a certain, this is, gospels aren't written in Hebrew. But if they were, you could make the case that Satan is showing him how tove these kingdoms of the earth are. Look at how beautiful they are. They're yours for the taking. Grasp them. Grab them. Mm. He says, no, I will not. I will not take those things that are tove. But you can, it's the same idea. I mean, that's, again, exactly like you're saying. That's our, this should be our worldview. We don't take. But Jesus also knows the end of the story. He's like, these nations will be mine. They already are mine. And they will be catholicos. They will be, this church will be universal. I don't need to take them because the grace will actually bring them. But then, but then you see this temptation against the temple, yeah. against like throw yourself down. And uh, like he says, the, lest the angel will strike you, f- like in a certain sense saying like Christ, I mean, 
<clears throat> in the reality of, of what he was facing, he says, Father, take this cup from me, but my not my yeah. will, but your will be done. Right. That in a certain vague sense, he's seeing the passion and mm. tempting him against what he understands that he must do, which mm. is he's be betrayed to be, and then, oh, lest your foot strike against a stone. The dude fell down and got beat to death yeah. until finally he offered himself entirely on in the most horrendous torture ever. Yeah. So like... <clears throat> And, if, and, which is which is really what is facing off against the evil one. Well, I wonder if Satan has some again. I, Satan doesn't know. He doesn't have the the ability to know all this. But if he has some inkling of the role that death is going to play, and he's like, just get it over with. Right. If the thing that Christ came to do is to die. Then you can throw yourself off. Just do it now. Just do get it. Get it done. Now. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of interesting because it's a weird temptation to give him. I've I've always struggled with it. The only way that I make sense of it is is in the passion that yeah. like because because what is he he is, has a sense that he's opposing the temple. Yeah. Right. Throw yourself jump off and it'll be a prophetic statement yeah, against yeah, the yeah. temple. Yeah. And uh, oh, and, but the angels will keep you. You know that'll it's be cool. Good. You'll be good. But but Jesus is like totally going to subvert that and say no. I'm going to offer myself entirely. And it's that that's the confusing part is that. Hmm. That how would you even understand like I, I yeah. so it's it's like it's a certain sense it's like Satan is bringing the spirit of confusion to these essential realities that Christ is actually trying to pour forth yeah yeah which is which is oh. the the Eucharist the passion the death and the resurrection and then a manifestation of the church in the world absolutely like, that's like, it and that's it that's the paradigm and yeah that, I think you nailed it <clears throat> which is precisely i don't understand how that that fits with adam and eve except for perfectly yeah i mean i don't you know yeah i think it fits it does fit but 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 like you said you can't see if adam and eve have any if they were to have any inkling of the wrong that they committed actually being made right the way in which jesus makes right what they did wrong is so far beyond anyone's dreams or expectations it blows them all out of the water right they are comparable but they're comparable in a way that totally outweighs. I mean, this is who is it? Saint Therese of or Saint Teresa of Avila, I think it was like you know, it's it's like what, your your sin is like one drop of water in God's ocean of mercy. His mercy is always way disproportionate to our sin. If we make the step, he'll make the ten thousand steps. Right? Yeah. It's always disproportionate. So the way that Jesus reconciles the sin in the world is actually disproportionate to the sin. He blows it wide open. He gives us himself to eat for Pete's sake. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He takes it on, gives himself to us, and makes it universal and eternal. Which is which is precisely where like Adam and Eve's grasping at it versus our expression of being able to receive it as real gift. Absolutely. And that that is the essence is is grasping and gift. Grasping and gift, baby. Are we going to receive it as a gift or are we going to reach out and take it? Reach out, reach out, and take something. Don't, don't, don't do, do that. that. Don't do that because that's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Yep, receive it as gift. Well, just like this podcast. Yes, for we want to welcome in a special way all of you who have been assigned this podcast as penance for Lent, <laughs> or have taken it on as penance. We're really happy to have you for the next couple of weeks. Yep, absolutely. May uh, may uh, you're walking in the passion <laughs> yep. of listening to us. We're excited to assist you. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, we'll be back next week for the second Sunday of Lent with more great insights. Bing bong. We will see you then. Okay, bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.